This is the Engaging Podcast. I'm Brandi Dolishal. In this episode, we hear from three history faculty members, Drs. Tom Cox, Jeff Littlejohn, and Zach Muntz. These three talk about their project, The Lone Star and the High Court, which is an active learning project that spans multiple classes. In this episode, we talk about The Lone Star and the High Court, a project of Drs. Tom Cox, Jeff Littlejohn, and Zach Muntz. Thank you so much, all of you, for being with me today. Thank you for having us. Um, So first, tell our listeners about The Lone Star and the High Court. The Lone Star and the High Court was an idea that Dr. Littlejohn and I batted around about 10 years ago. Um, It was the idea that of all the branches of the federal government, the Supreme Court is is clearly the most hierarchical. It was set up that way under the U.S. Constitution in 1787. Uh, The court is the only branch of the government where the nine justices are appointed for life tenure during good behavior. Um, It was uh, the only branch of the federal government in which it's Members wore robes and sat on a dais, and there were traditions going back to the English court system and even the Roman and ecclesiastical courts of the early modern period that that lawyers and judges had to follow. They dispensed with the wearing of wigs, for example, but you still had a lot of ceremony and a lot of, of tradition in the culture of the court. And the court, in the early case of Marbury v. Madison in 1803, set itself up as the the court of last appeal for interpreting the United States Constitution. So it's a very hierarchical form of government. And it's ironic that in an American uh, democracy that oftentimes the people, even today, tend to look towards not the presidency or, or the Congress, but the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of their rights uh, uh, in the under the Constitution, under the Bill of Rights, that we even to this day look to this group of nine individuals on the High Court as the final guarantee of our guarantee of our local rights. And whenever there's a big political controversy in the United States, whether it is states' rights or abortion or uh, the ability of the federal government to wiretap individuals. These matters are not usually resolved at the state level or the presidential or congressional level. They're usually resolved by the Supreme Court, which has accumulated a reputation for itself as the branch of government that is the last the last bastion of democracy against uh, uh, totalitarianism, against authoritarianism. And this is, once again, very ironic because it's the most hierarchical branch of the government. And yet, all Supreme Court landmark cases originate in local circumstances. They originate in local communities, oftentimes by blue-collar people, and many of them are minorities, trying to just establish their basic political and economic and civil rights. And, you know, the, the whole history of the court bears this out. Segregation was taken down, not first by the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights of 1965, but this process was initiated with the very controversial uh, Brown v. Board decision in 1954. Uh, segregation was originally upheld under Plessy v. Ferguson in the 1890s, which gave the green light to segregation. Abortion rights, uh, the, the still the defining case, even in 2022, is Roe v. Wade. And so it's, it's interesting. Interesting that oftentimes ordinary working class people in working class circumstances have this incredible relationship with these nine very high ranked uh, uh, federal officials and the, between the interplay between these local and national groups, American constitutional law and American social issues are usually worked out. 
Um, Dr. Liljohn, do you want to talk more about the immediate reason why we're using Texas as a model for this project? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, this project, as Tom said, came out of a desire to talk about the way the federal court system and the Supreme Court in particular deals with social and cultural topics uh, from the state's history. So one of the things we wanted to do is bring students into the process and familiarize them with some of the landmark cases that came from their local communities so that they could learn important figures in the civil rights movement, for example, learn how uh, laws changed and why they changed, and learn about the organizations that brought the cases to trial, like the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and other groups. So um, that's why we focused on Texas. You know, there, there wasn't a project like this available and there were so many crucial cases from Texas at the U.S. Supreme Court level. And so what we wanted to do was invite students, first of all, to help us, you know, help us uh, teach one another about the cases themselves. And that's where we got the idea for building the website and showcasing the students' work on the Internet. Also, Texas kind of has a reputation. I mean, we're an incredibly big and powerful state right now. And there's this process known as the Texodus, whereby Americans from, from other states are quickly moving to build lives here in the Lone Star State. And in a lot of ways, Texas is kind of ground zero for the culture wars, whether it's the issue of textbooks, whether it's the issue of abortion, whether it's the uh, rights of undocumented uh, immigrants. Um, many times it's Texas which because of its size, because of its, comp its social complexity, uh, has a tremendous number of Supreme Court landmark cases that have been heard in recent years. And so Texas seemed like the perfect, uh, the, the perfect site to launch a project like this. And, and as, as the Texas continues, Texas will only become more important in both the culture wars and in Supreme Court cases. So hopefully this is a timely project, if nothing else. How did logistically, how did you make it happen? Like where, where did you start? <laughs> I'm sort of thinking toward like, you know, if someone has a big idea like this, cause it's a, a big undertaking, uh -huh. um, where, where would you suggest that they start with that? Uh, Dr. Littlejohn and I spearheaded an internal grant at SAM about uh, seven or eight years ago on this. Um, and we just took a list of Supreme Court cases that originated in Texas, beginning with a very important case called Texas v. White in the 1870s, which dealt with the, uh, the issue of Confederate debts and the Civil War, and which indirectly dealt with the nature of the Union. Was the United States once and for all a single nation, or was it a, a collection of sovereign states, or to what degree were states sovereign under the U.S. Constitution? And from there, we went on to other cases in uh, the 1940s and the 1950s um, that dealt with the issue of the desegregation of juries, that dealt more with civil rights. We talked about Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. We just made a list of cases, and then we had students write papers about these cases. And then we got busy with other things. Uh, I did a Fulbright to China. Dr. Little John uh, became director of graduate studies. So we kind of put it on the back burner for a couple of years. And then uh, with the 
incidents that happened, uh, you know, on January 6th of 2021, constitutional issues became very relevant again to people's daily lives. And so we kind of brought out the project. We taught an undergraduate course on the matter. We brought in Dr. Motz, uh, who's an excellent teacher and who really gave us some great ideas about how to run the class. And then the three of us set up this honors class, this uh, uh, spring on free speech, which we're currently teaching, which is kind of like a extension of the original grant project. But we've been uh, asking students uh, in our honors seminar in 20, what was it, Jeff, 2021 or 2020? Fall of 2020, we, we taught a course on this. And we asked each student to write a, a case on the, uh, a, a brief of the case. And then we edited those and put those on our website. So that's kind of how the project germinated. And then, um, you know, we, we were in the current process of applying for other uh, outside grants at Humanities, Texas, and other places. And uh, we kind of grew it from there. Yeah, I'll just add to that uh, to say that the the first stages of the product of the project mostly done by uh, my two colleagues <clears throat> involving this honors uh, course that they took. But a lot of the work of the project is of course, uh, kind of, uh, choosing exactly what we uh, can do in what is for all of us uh, limited time. So this uh, began with uh, putting together this website with a dozen or so more actually uh, kind of landmark cases that uh, come out of Texas. And then putting together a set of kind of classroom activities and materials that would bring the real depth of these cases uh, into our classrooms. And of course, uh, as we all know, kind of like a good classroom activity, 99% of that work happens beforehand and outside of the classroom. So a lot of getting started on the project has been envisioning uh, kind of what we want the classroom to look like and then building backwards from there, all of the work that it takes to uh, build the accompanying materials, that sort of stuff to get things working with uh, Blackboard, uh, all of that, which we've been able to put together uh, for some of these cases now that we've been using to teach in class. Great. One thing I would add that we really discovered, Brandy, as we were doing this, is that many of the cases we wanted to do a... Uh, moot court or mock trial uh, format in which the students would play several roles over time. Some of them would be lawyers, some of them would be sitting in judgment. Um, and what we discovered is that many of the cases are no longer very easy to argue about. Um, not because they're not controversial or important, but because the arguments presented, especially by the state, and many of them are just objectionable arguments that were literally based upon racism and discrimination, mm -hmm. sexism, and other forms of discrimination. So that has certainly complicated the way uh, we've thought about this, because certainly you can have someone argue <laughs> what you might even call, you know, a devil's advocate or something, but it, it, it causes a problem because historically it's very hard for the uh, students, I think, to understand how revolutionary some of these cases were, like Sweat v. Painter are the uh, white primary cases. There were four white primary cases in Texas 
uh, maybe we should talk about some of them. Uh, those cases, I'll just say a little bit about them. But basically, beginning in the early 20th century, the state of Texas used both the poll tax, which was a kind of paper blockade against voting. So you had to pay the poll tax by the end of January of the year in which you wanted to vote, and uh, January 31, and then you wouldn't vote till November. And of course, when you paid the poll tax, you wouldn't know who the candidates were. And then they added on top of that, on top of that poll tax, they added the white primary, which said that only white people could vote in the Democratic primary. And so there was only one party in Texas in the early 20th century. That was the Democratic Party. So not only would you have to pay the poll tax all, you know, 11 months before you were going to vote, but then you, as let's say a black voter, could not be, could not participate in the selection of the candidates. And um, so that made it very unreasonable really to participate in the electoral process. And therefore, a lot of people just didn't. Um, and so, you know, the white primary was a very difficult thing to overturn because the state of Texas was very ingenious. Every time they would lose a case, they would modify the law ever so slightly. And I'm not going to get into all those technicalities here. They can look on the website if they're interested, but they would modify the law uh, in, in technical ways that would at least give them the idea that they could carry on the white primary and they would have to be sued again. The only way to overcome it was literally to sue again. And the only organization that had the resources and the means at the time to carry out these lawsuits was the state NAACP, State National Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. So I think students can really start to appreciate how important the NAACP was in overturning things like the poll tax, which would be later. Um, they, they overturned the white primary in 1944. And then they litigated cases. Uh, can I tell another story? Let me tell another story. Maybe you can edit this around. Let me tell one other story um, about Sweat v. Painter. Um, or maybe, Zach, Zach or Tom, y'all want to tell that story? Well, why don't I just jump in to, to kind of add something onto what, oh, yeah, okay. to what Jeff was saying. Uh, <laughs> Jeff had said that the, the state of Texas had been rather ingenious in coming up with ways to perpetuate a white primary system that would seem to uh, be violating of, against the, of the 15th Amendment, the constitutional guarantee that the right to vote shouldn't be denied on the grounds of race. One of the things that this project does and that the the teaching exercises that we've designed around it does is that it forces students to really get into some of the technical details of these cases. And the state of Texas, perhaps just uh, owing to its uh, kind of long established institutions of white supremacy or just the sort of nature of its kind of benighted legislators, has over time provided us with great case studies of how rights are lost, as well as ways that rights have been secured. 
And so when students uh, get into the details of these cases, the white primary case is a great example here, they can see how the state, the state sustained for uh, decades arguments that seemed constitutionally compelling, that seemed constitutionally neutral in order to uphold these systems which stripped millions of people of their right to participate in government. And when students gain an appreciation of that, that sometimes the big picture stuff is made down in the trenches and in those nitty gritty details, they gain something from this learning experience that they don't from simply learning, well, this case overturned this precedent or this case struck down the white primary or something like that. And it holds uh, a relevance to the way that people think about and defend their rights in the present. Something like Smith v. Allwright, which strikes down the white primary, seems to be uh, you know, a legacy of an era that oftentimes in students' minds is just, well, that was an era of racism. And the racism that existed back then, it's as if in their minds they imagine that there was a state of Texas law that says Texas got to do racism. And when you really get into these cases, you find out that, no, these structures, these things were, were built on all of these uh, kind of the small constitutional bricks that had made up the, the great uh, wall of the color line in our society. Mm-hmm. And so these things seems that they, anyway, they seem like they're some uh, legacy of the past, but this continues to shape the way that people fight for or lose their rights in the present. One of the striking things as a historian, watching the legal arguments unfold around this uh, new Texas law, which allows private parties to sue anybody who might facilitate the exercise of someone's constitutional right to obtain an abortion. The fascinating thing about looking at the legal arguments over that is that those arguments aren't very much about abortion. They're about constitutional ideas between the extent to which uh, private parties are bound by uh, the constitution, questions about state action. And these are the exact sort of seemingly dry constitutional issues that were before the court in things like Smith v. Allwright and in the white primary case. Uh, In fact, Smith v. Allwright is cited in some of the filings related to that abortion law. So we see in questions over modern rights in the state of Texas, that the way that the boundaries of people's rights are being defined is through these small and seemingly technical questions of constitutional law. And by getting students to appreciate those in the past, I think it helps them understand how their rights are won or lost uh, in the present. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really a, an interesting point. Um, that's a, a clear benefit to your students about like really understanding what constitutional arguments are. What other benefits do you see um, in this class and with the website and just kind of the, the whole giant project that you have going to the students. I can speak a little bit to that. Part of what we hope they get out of it is, is a renewed appreciation for the importance of Texas in the United States as kind of a, a, a crucible for social and legal and, and cultural change. Texas is heir more than any other state to you know, different constitutional traditions. You know, Texas was originally, uh, you know, before, uh, after Native Americans, it was, it was a Spanish colony. It imported a lot of Spanish colonial law. 
And uh, when it became part of Mexico, a lot of those legal traditions over water rights and, and uh, the laws for orphans and the laws for widows continued. Uh, and then when Texas becomes a, a state in the union, you know, it kind of is stamped with uh, Jacksonian legal traditions of the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, an emphasis on property rights, an emphasis on gun ownership, uh, you know, an emphasis on kind of, you know, defense of traditional religion under the Constitution. During the Civil War, uh, you know, of course, it attempts succession, creates a Confederate constitution. It tries very much to be like Virginia and South Carolina in it's a slaveholding republic. This gets overturned in 1865 when the South loses the Civil War. Uh, Texas drafts a new re uh, Reconstruction-based constitution, which is progressive in a lot of ways. This gets overturned by the Redeemer movement in the 1880s. Texas is ground zero for uh, a lot of the battles involving desegregation. Um, it becomes a very, very hot spot for issues such as uh, religious monuments on, on city grounds in the 1980s and 1990s. It becomes a, a ground zero place for the issue of prayer in schools, a lot of, a lot of uh, issues coming out of the religious right movement in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, Texas has all these different legal traditions. It has uh, a very strong what we call rights tradition of people sticking up for their rights. As you know, there's nothing more Texas than, uh, you know, the little guy standing up for his rights, whether it's a, a, a white landowner in the 1830s in the Texas Revolution or a black civil rights demonstrator in the 1960s uh, standing up for desegregated colleges. Um, you know, Texas is kind of the place to go, not just to start your life over again, but the place you go to pursue form which you pursue social and economic justice. And that's a, that, in its own way, that's a, a very impressive tradition. That's something Texans of all, of all stripes, of all ranks can take pride in. So we hope that it, it encourages people, you know, to address the things in Texas's past, which were racist and uh, uh, which were horrible, but we also in, uh, invoke them to take kind of pride in Texas's long tradition of engagement with the federal courts and, and how a lot of, of, of victories for minorities have been won by Texans uh, on Texas-related issues. Well, I will say that considering these cases in particular, I think offers uh, students the ability to see themselves in the history that we're teaching, especially in introductory courses where sometimes you're considering uh, big developments and in which you just don't always have time to drop into the, the personal level. The Supreme Court cases that rose out of Texas come out of places that are really familiar to some of our mm -hmm. students, sometimes down to the very addresses where they take place. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. cases involving uh, both gay rights and mm -hmm. uh, black civil rights that come out of neighborhoods in Houston that everyone's familiar mm -hmm. with. Uh, that these Texas cases involve a lot of uh, Mexican-American uh, plaintiffs um, and brings the, those stories into the history survey in a way that in many ways they don't otherwise get in there uh, as the profession has been maybe slower than it should have been in integrating those sort of Mexican-American uh, history into the overall survey. So I think it is an opportunity for our students to see themselves also just themselves as regular people in the sort of histories that we're talking about. It's much easier for them to identify with a plaintiff as a young person facing various institutions, including the institution where they're educated, over which they sometimes don't feel that in control of. That's the position of the plaintiff. 
And so I think it, that can be really appealing to uh, young students to, you know, to, to, to learn that way, right? Um, I'll also just say in my class that one of the advantages I think it's brought students is that it's a, it's a break in lecture. And I'll say, like, I am in some ways traditional in my teaching that I think that lecture is still a really good way to deliver information in a survey course, but I try and get away from it. Uh, almost every uh, class period have something active going on. And this is the sort of project that they found, I think, I hope, uh, pretty compelling. It's also in a time of COVID been a way where they can do some group work and do some group work that is structured in a way that actually works. When we started all of this, whether it be in the hybrid classes or the online uh, formats or whatever it might be, there was the sort of dreaded pedagogical space, stumbling over that word, but this sort of dreaded space of the Zoom breakout room, where I think we all had very high hopes for what that would mean. And what we figured out is it was just a place where six blank screens didn't talk to each other until the professor dropped in. And then suddenly there's a scramble to appear active. Also true in math. Do, what's that? <laughs> also true in math. Oh, true in, in, in every discipline. And the, the reasons for it, it has nothing to do with, you know, students not wanting to learn or professors not uh, coming up with the right questions, it has everything to do with the nature of kind of social accountability. That when we are face-to-face, -face, there's something really powerful about, okay, let's do this, let's work through this, that we feel like we owe something to each other when we're face-to-face. -face. And something about that Zoom breakout room or about this connection drops that, right? It, it really encourages the free rider problem. And eventually the two out of six students that have been doing the most leading and thinking and talking in those groups and they're done with that. So what we've uh, had to figure out through the development of materials is the way to create roles in which everyone felt accountable in these groups to where you could come up with a grade that is both an individual and a sort of uh, a group grade. And then once that that's structured, I think that the students enjoy being in the sort of environment where they can be doing that sort of collaborative and discussing and helping each other kind of through things. And I think that at least in my classes, when I first started the kind of pandemic era teaching, that wasn't happening. And I, I felt that that had really been lost. And so uh, this has kind of allowed that to come back a little. Of course, in the face-to-face -face classes where we've been doing these sorts of exercises, we're right back to doing group work, that sort of stuff. But mm -hmm. um, I still personally have a fair number of students who I let join uh, over Zoom and that sort of stuff. So we have had success kind of doing that uh, in that format. How, how, is there anything you wanted to add to that question, Jeff? Well, I would just add that um, getting back to it, a, a suggestion I was making a little while ago that, um, the cases really reveal the extent to which the state was involved in discriminatory action and the state, uh, the, the extent to which the state went to defend its discriminatory action. Um, hiring lawyers, spending years in court, uh, trying to maintain white supremacy and, you know, the heteronormative uh, uh, establishment and that 
you know, it took activists who were willing to put their own lives, their own finances, their own jobs on the line year after year after year to overcome this kind of discrimination. We see it still in Texas. Texas is writing new uh, legislation to limit voting rights. Texas, as we know, is uh, legisl- uh, is is working right now to end abortion. Uh, Texas wants books banned from the classroom. Senate Bill 8 is an attempt to uh, limit the teaching of racism and discrimination and slavery in schools. I mean, we're seeing the same sort of thing by the white supremacists who are in the legislature today that we've seen in the past. Uh, They want the same thing. They want to be in control. They want Texas to be a white man state. And they do not like uh, being challenged by uh, or really even, uh, you know, discussing things with uh, black and Hispanic people. And so it's this is deeply connected to the past discrimination. Today, we are deeply connected to it. And um, so I, I hope the students can understand uh, some of what Zach was talking about a little while ago, the, uh, what, what is it? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, I think, is a, is a quote about how they're not exactly the same. It's not the same thing that went on in the 30s and 40s, but it's similar enough to trace continuities between the past and the present. And I think students are uh, smart enough and uh, creative enough to see that and understand it. I'll also say, uh, to build on something that Jeff had mentioned earlier, uh, about the role that kind of the, the role playing of quasi moot court activities uh, allows here. Uh, in some cases, you have students who are playing the role of someone representing, say, Texas's opinion on the white primary cases, that which will have the state advancing an argument that everyone in that room will reject, right? In other cases, in other situations, however, I think that uh, the, the Supreme Court cases, especially Roe, provide a way for students to talk about an issue on which there will be real differences of opinion. And by giving people roles, sometimes has people put forward opinions with which they disagree and engage them in this task of understanding maybe the best argument that you disagree with, if you know what I mean, kind mm-hmm. of to see what the other side, how the other side thinks and uh, builds an argument. And in particular on that issue, to have a discussion about uh, bodily integrity, about the rights of women, and to do it in a way that revolves around these uh, constitutional issues it might allow discussions about the topic of abortion that are otherwise very difficult to sustain uh, in a classroom um, when the when the topic is just the thing itself. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, th- this is something that's inherent in the teaching of history, which is that there are a lot of things in which like as a, you know, there's just a really there are two sides to it. Right. And yet it's important for under for students to understand how what we all now see as bad things were allowed in the past, but there also is an element to our discipline which really demands that we see what things look like from other people's position. And that should extend to questions on which there 
is by no means a consensus, you know, that comes, that comes out of things like, uh, like Roe v. Wade, uh, for example. And so maybe in that case, this is the sort of structured exercise which helps people see things from positions which they uh, very much disagree with, which I think is a valuable intellectual exercise that can be carried out without people having to give up any of their, you know, rightfully very uh, strongly felt uh, beliefs about things like the rights of women. So I hope that it gives some of that uh, to the classroom too. Although, you know, sometimes it's very hard to figure out exactly how an exercise felt to a student, right? You know, that's just something that uh, I'm always thinking about. That seemed to have gone well. How well did it go in their mind? I think, I think time will tell on that. As you observe an exercise kind of over and over and over, you really get a sense of it. And we're kind of on, in early days on some of these. I, that's a, I mean, I also have that problem. Like, I think this problem was easy. Did they understand it? But mine's a little, you know, a lot different, <laughs> but, but it's, I, for me, just like as a human sitting here listening to you, it sort of makes me think that, that you know, there's like history that's decided and history that is still being decided. Um, so like, there are things that we can argue about today still, but everybody agrees that racism is bad you've got to be like super careful about the things that you ask students to do in this setting, because you, you like, you don't want students to have to like argue for racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then the stuff that's still being decided, it still gives you something to work with where you can like, they can have, like you said, the conversation argue for the thing that they may not agree with even. That's mm -hmm. really, I mean, this is, for some of this, it, it channels argument into areas which might feel, I don't want to say safer, but where people are more able to make arguments that they disagree with uh, on the abortion example uh, for taking an argument in which we would be balancing ideas about the, the, the right of women to control their own lives and bodies against what other people argue are the rights of uh, on the unborn. Right. And see how that is a, is a social argument that in a constitutional sense plays out about the, the, the power of the state to regulate uh, people um, and about the limits of state power over people's personal lives. Um, but even on these decided questions, you know, one of the things that sometimes happens when you introduce people to the way that racist structures in the past were upheld is they say, well, like for the, in the white primary example, the central argument of the state of Texas is that private organizations like the Democratic Party should be free to craft their own membership. Now, of course, eventually the court sees through that sort of, you know, uh, false distinction between a purely private world and a world ordered by the state. And they recognize that those constitutional guarantees needed to extend to these so-called private institutions. But when you just make that argument on its face, well, private groups of individuals should be able to set their own membership policies and the constitution doesn't enter into every area of private life. Well, there you might find students that kind of say, okay, that makes a logical sense to me. And the greater kind of historical lesson is the way that institutions and practices that they disagree with were upheld by arguments that they might find at least initially compelling. And, that, and that's where it gets applicable to some of what you're saying are the kind of the unsettled questions. I mean, 
it's we live in this time where students and everybody can look to the past and say, oh, well, the old uh, race based voting restrictions were bad. Shouldn't have done that. Um, and then you look back at to how those things are actually happened and how they were sustained and realizes that it was a thousand little laws rather than one that said no black voting in most cases. And then you apply it to the present when we're passing lots of other little laws now, which have an impact on who can and who cannot vote, who can vote easily and who faces an uphill climb to do so. And those are laws which have lots of supporters. And so it, it helps us, you know, kind of apply that lesson uh, from the past to the present to see how arguments which don't seem to be about race in the present, we can kind of learn our lessons from the past to see, oh, okay, this is how these uh, sorts of things are being put together. So uh, the settled questions of the past, when you really look at how they were sustained, and they sound a lot like the, the unsettled questions <laughs> of the present in many ways. Maybe not as settled as we think they are. Well, perhaps not. <laughs> So how have your students reacted to this type of pedagogy? Well, um, I, think they, I think they did pretty well in the uh, drafting of the arguments and really trying to uh, get into the cases themselves uh, and kind of laying out uh, some background, some introduction to what the case was about, where it originated, what the questions raised by the cases were and the constitutional questions and then how they were decided. Um, so on that, on the front end, on the creative side, I think it went uh, really well. I wish we could just replicate that over and over, really, because that gives them the opportunity to create something new every time. When you ask them to go and look at the site and it seems static and you're not really inventing something new every time, you can have the discussions in class, but it seems less pertinent or less, you know, uh, creative in the sense where they're, they're doing something on their own. That's at least my takeaway. I, you know, I think the students do better when they are creating something, a product, a, 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 you know, a, um, a presentation, a website, whatever it may be. What did y'all think? I mean, my, this is always the case when you debut something new is you figure out that you've given the students something and they're, you haven't given them enough. We've given them the wrong things sometime. So you forget just how technical some of these things are. And even after editing down portions of say the argument over the white primary case, um, you know, the students were like, this is very technical. This is very in-depth. But they didn't have any problem understanding the kind of the logic. It's not that deep. The constitutional issues, they don't have a problem with the argument. It's a lot of the technical language that's used by lawyers. Systems which rely on kind of knowing all the stuff that are maybe designed to keep people from understanding what really goes on. That the law is a language intended to be impervious to people who lack the training in the books. But that little critique of the legal system aside, um, kind of just having a fluency with the process by which cases get to the Supreme Court, by the roles of you know, plaintiffs and defendants and advocates, by knowing how the styling of a case works and naming it and things like that, and all of the other kind of procedural things that make up the law, 
um, the first time going through it, I had not given nearly enough background uh, in that sort of stuff. Once students learn to decode that, the formalism of legal language, they find that the argument, sometimes they're surprised by how that kind of common sense the argument is or how against common sense the position of some of the people were. Uh, Hernandez uh, v. Texas is a good example of this, which turns on this question about like what is racial difference and whether uh, Mexican-Americans were people of a different race than white or whether they were racially white. And to students, there was an intuitive understanding that in the way that race works, in other words, in the way that racial discrimination works, that of course there was a difference between Mexican-American Texans and, and, and white Texans. And so there was some surprise there to understand how a whole body of legal thinking had been built, which existed in, you know, in complete opposition to what they assumed was just a common sense thing, that how could all of these uh, judges and attorneys and all these people sitting around, sit around and pretend that something was the case that so plainly wasn't, you know, now that was kind of been something that as a, as a historian, you know all of these things and you forget that feeling the first time when you discover just how willing sometimes the legal profession is to practice a sort of uh, uh, a blindness to the reality of everyday life. And that it sometimes takes decades of litigation to force through an acceptance of what is so plain if people simply want to open their eyes. And when students kind of see that, sometimes I find the result is, you know, they'll uh, this sort of thing, which, you know, the, how to put this, the robes are off, that the things that make the Supreme Court so special, the robe, the high bench, all of this, they say, well, this is not an area that is so foreign to my thinking or beyond my comprehension. Mm -hmm. so maybe I don't have to agree with everything these people have said. You know, it can be liberating, uh, I guess, in that sense. Once you work through all the technical language, maybe there's a Wizard of Oz moment that they see behind the curtain. That's the metaphor I'm looking for. And they realize that the great and powerful is just a guy. <laughs> that, that's, I'm sure, empowering for your students, too, when you show them the pieces of, like, the argument and the pieces that go into it you know, it has this format, but really this is all they're saying that, you know, it sort of opens up this whole world to them of understanding, not just the Supreme Court, but just like the legal system, maybe a little better. Yeah. Formal systems, institutions, you know, that uh, the, the 20 page or the hundred page brief really only makes one argument and that they you know, part of navigating and fighting in institutions is developing the skill of taking sometimes, you know, big, big and things that are maybe made to be uh, to obscure and develop the, the sort of fluency to cut through that and get right to the heart of it. When they get the feeling of doing that, that's a really powerful feeling. Tom, is there anything you'd like to add? To this oh, no, question? no, uh, okay. no, totally to Perfect. agree with Dr. Littlejohn and Dr. Monson's points. That was an excellent way of describing what we hope students achieve by this. And Dr. Littlejohn makes a very salient point, too, that, you know, there's only so many Supreme Court cases Texas has been involved in. They're always generating new cases, to be sure. But um, and if we pursue this in the future, we, we will 
probably, I assume, maybe creating more specialty courses, you know, like maybe looking at black civil rights cases in, in Texas, cases we've already looked at in a very straightforward, basic way, which could be looked at as a group and we could go into much more detail on, or maybe a case on borderlands issues, just how citizenship is defined in Texas, what Supreme Court cases have involved uh, uh, the migration issue and uh, how that will continue to evolve in, into the future. So now that we've kind of, you know, staked out a large amount of intellectual space, Perhaps in the future, we could begin creating more specialty cases within that genre and provide more websites, provide more insight into deeper layers of meaning in cases we've already covered briefly on the, uh, in, in our first uh, incarnation of the course, so to say. It's kind of a fine line, right? Hoping more cases come out of Texas. Versus- oh, that's the irony. <laughs> I mean, in the past, in the past uh, 30 years, we faced two very contested presidential elections, the 2000 and the 2020 election, uh, you know, the, the events of, of, of January uh, 6, 2021 are, uh, you know, extremely uh, breathtaking, shall we say, and cite the incredible need to understand the constitution, the constitutional order uh, for good or for ill. It's something we desperately need more civic education on. Um, this has never been a busier time for constitutional scholars. We're, our work has never been needed more than it is right now. And yet, fewer and fewer Americans seem to understand the, the, the Madisonian system that the founders intended and that the Civil War generation and the progressive generation uh, uh, doubled down on in terms of, you know, a marketplace of ideas, the states as laboratories, the idea of a, of a constitutional order is a system of give and take. And it's made up of individuals, as, as Zach very, very rightly pointed out. It's made up of people with their own biases and their own prejudices. But it's still a system that has survived more or less intact for over two centuries and texas has been a leading battleground state for a lot of these cases and so uh, the need to educate has i think never been more apparent the trick is just how do you get people interested in a system which is by its definition slow and requires multiple moving parts and people of differing opinions to compromise for the common good uh that that's what needs i think recapturing and that's a very tall order in 2022 not to end on a negative note, but, you know, just to <laughs> well, inject some current politics into our discussion. Definitely. Is there, are there any last, last uh, comments you want to make about this? It was a very fascinating for, for me. I just got to sit and listen. Mostly. It was really interesting to listen to yeah. you, to the three of you talk about the, the ways that you're incorporating this into your honors classes and then also your survey classes. Thank you for an excellent interview. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Engaging Podcast. I'm Brandy Dollishall. Thanks for taking this time to hear about your colleagues' work in active learning.